Hi, everybody. I'm Dan. And I'm Michael. So welcome to this extended edition of 15-Minute Film Fanatics. Usually we talk about a different film each week and a film that Mike and I watch separately, but then talk about for the first time. But today, we are so, so delighted. We're going to be interviewing Julie Solomon about her book, which we'll talk about in a couple of minutes, The Devil's Candy. Now, um, Julie's the New York Times best-selling author of nine books. Most recently, uh, she wrote a book called An Innocent Bystander about the killing of Leon Klinghoffer. But she has many interests. She's written a biography of Wendy Wasserstein, books for children. And it's funny because I was when I was looking up her, uh, her resume, so to speak, in her 2009 book, Hospital, she got the praise of none other than Tom Wolfe, who called her one of America's best fly-on-the-wall reporters. Now, of course, we mentioned Tom Wolfe because when his 1987 mega bestseller, The Bonfire of the Vanities, was set to become a film directed by Brian De Palma, Brian De Palma and many others thought they were going to make the next Citizen Kane, or at least the next, the next big blockbuster, but things didn't turn out that way. And Julie's 1991 book about the making of the Bonfire film is The Devil's Candy, The Anatomy of a Hollywood Fiasco. It was published 30 years ago. I only read it for the first time about a year and a half ago. And as soon as I did, as soon as I finished it, I texted Mike. And Mike, what did I tell you in the text? You said you got to read this immediately. <laughs> You've got to read this immediately. And Mike did. We are great, great fans of this book. We are great admirers of her work. And so here we are. So Julie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So can you briefly tell us, before we get to some of the deeper questions in the book, can you just um, fill the listeners in? How did you get access to Brian De Palma and, and the making of this film, which was slated to be you know, a giant, giant production? So um, at the time, I was the film critic for the Wall Street Journal. And I had gotten to know Brian probably five years before that in a kind of weird situation where... Um, I was reviewing Body Double, a movie I didn't like that much, and his PR person wanted me to meet him. And I said, eh, I'd rather meet him when I'm reviewing a movie I do like, because you can't lie. You're gonna, it's going to be in the paper. Um, anyhow, we met and uh, hit it off. And over the next few years, he sort of became a, you know, he's a little bit of a troublemaker. If he had a story idea, he'd kind of plan it for me. And I had told him that I was interested in doing a book somewhat like Lillian Ross's picture where she had followed John Houston around. And um, he, when he got um, hired to do Bonfire, he called me up and said, what would you think about doing this? I think he thought it would be a way to sort of expose Hollywood, but also have somebody write this book about this great movie. And that's how it got started. Funny that you mentioned uh, Lillian Ross because with that that book, I kept thinking of that her book about John Huston's making the Red Badge of Courage, which also isn't a great movie either. Um, but about the, the same kind of thing, how the you know the, the the production takes on a life of its own. So let me ask you about this. So it's funny you said that you know he kind of uh, you know endeared himself to you, and you guys seem to you, you seem to have hit it off. Something that uh, that in hindsight is absent from your book is any sense of of glee. Like if the, your book is not snarky at all, you never revel in the failure of this film, or you never invite the reader to feel superior to the people that were making Bonfire. When when I first saw the film coming out, and I was a great admirer of the novel, um, my first reaction was like everybody else. I thought Tom Hanks is going to be Sherman. Like what? And 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 Brian De Palma is going to direct it. Like why is he directing? The, and why is Bruce Willis in it? And like all these other things. But after I read your book, I almost felt guilty. So this is my question: You're living through the you're living through the experience of being the fly on the wall, documenting the making of this film. But then when you revised the book, was was any of your intent to kind of you know um, get us to pause while we all 
do our Monday morning quarterbacking about films? Like, do you, are you less likely to roll your eyes now when you see director's decisions since you spent all this time with the Palma? Well, I think it was more a case of really, I love process. I love that, you know, most people have an idea of how things happen, you know, whether it's government or hospitals or uh, your family, you know, everybody has these mythologies that we create. And I'm always interested in what really happens. It's always more interesting to me than these fake uh, narratives than we that we make up. And so I think for me, being on the film set was just fascinating. And I was also really struck by how people really cared. You know, it was funny, like that there was that you have to, you know, you have to work yourself up into this crazy enthusiasm because it's hard. And a lot of it's stupid and boring and you're sitting around. And um, so I don't think I was really thinking of what the reader per se would think about it, but what, how could I convey how I was feeling really watching this incredible machine, really, you know, this was a $50 million movie by the time it was all added up and so many people and so many conflicting interests and desires. It was just this huge drama going on in front of my eyes. And so my idea wasn't to, to I came neither to praise nor damn it. I just came to observe it and to try and convey what it was, what it was like. And it's funny you mentioned how much work goes into it because my favorite detail in the book, and there's a million great details, is the 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 trouble that people had to go through to get a courtroom, first of all, to, to actually use, and that they had to hire somebody to paint the murals that would go into the courtroom, and how much we take for granted when we watch anything. And you see all, so work is a great, is a great word for, for what goes on in this book. Yeah, and actually one of my favorite things on the whole thing was this total shock to me, you know, like this whole process of seeing the sound people who had to make the sound of people walking and it's so primitive you know here we have all this great technology and some guy is sitting there banging on a pot to get a like specific sound just little things like that I just I kind of love just the working quality of it well side note at my um the first thought I ever had as a kid I think I was 12 years old and I was watching another Brian De Palma movie The Untouchables and it was the first moment that I realized um, that someone someone was getting an exterior shot of the street that they had to take like 40 vintage cars and, and park them all. Um, and, and I thought, who masterminded that and who put that together? Is there like a production assistant that just drags the cars out? Um, but so you talked about process. And I think one of the other things that muddies the water about process um, is, is, is the way that films talk about themselves or talk about themselves being made. So I'll read you a quote. Um, and this is from Richard Silbert, the production designer, the guy who wears the safari suits. Um, and, and I think he touches on a chief issue of the devil's candy. So, and he says, this safari suit, the thing that he's wearing is a uniform. I wear a uniform because to me, a movie is war. And if you don't know it's a war, you're missing something. The war is between the problems, the people with ideas and the people with the money, the crazies versus the bean counters. And it's the only war that ever is. It never changes, but you better know it's there. And so the struggle between uh, the people that want to make the movie and the people who want to see it made and get paid uh, accounts for some of that process. Can, can you touch on that quote or, or talk about the, the process of the struggle between the folks with the money and the folks with ideas? 
Sure. And, you know, we're talking about Hollywood movies here, big budget movies. You know, you don't have to do the movie this way. You know, you can make a simple little movie like they do in Washington Square Park here, all the NYU film students. And it's a much less complicated process. It has its own issues. But in a movie like this, you know, where millions of dollars are on the line, I think the filmmakers in general, not always, uh, but most of them uh, have an artistic bent. Dick Silber, who sadly is dead now, but he was a great artist. You know, he really was. He went to art school. He wanted to be a painter and he became an art director. And so, but when you're doing it for a big budget Hollywood movie, you immediately start have to chip away from your vision because you're not making some pure canvas alone in your studio. You're making something that has to be win over millions of people and automatically it starts going to a lower common denominator. So that's one of the battles. In Bonfire, because they shot so much of the film on the streets of New York, they just had the logistical nightmare of dealing with the city and the savvy of people in the city of, oh yeah, you want to film in front of my building? Put their hands out and say, I'd like 50,000 bucks, you know? So that was another kind of battle. And then between the studio, the bean counters, as he called it, the people managing the purse strings, you know, they always want you to cut back and the filmmakers always want you to do the opposite of cutting back to make it more and better and cooler. So, yeah, I think it is a little bit like a war. I mean, it's a better war. Nobody gets shot. So I guess that that makes it somewhat better. But And, and the other piece that's a little bit like a military sort of thing is it's very hierarchical. You know, the director is the general or the god. And then beneath them, you know, as you look at the titles, and then by the time you get down to the, like you were saying, the person who has to put the cars out on the street, they're at the very bottom at the totem pole. They're the privates. Or is there something below a private? No, they're the yeah. privates. <laughs> well, you find all those people interesting, which is which is so great because the, there's a great part in the book where you talk about the struggle to get the, the perfect airplane landing and how that was really meaningful for the people that had to go get that shot at the airport. And again, none of us think twice when we see a plane land at a film about all the work that goes into it. Yeah, I mean, that shot that you're talking about, I think it cost $80,000 and it's about I don't know, a minute, not even a film, a few seconds. And it's really a beautiful shot. That's for sure. But it's, it's kind of insane. Yeah. I have a side question though. So I, I tend to be the auteur kind of guy. When I talk about a director's work, I, I try to talk about this, the, the different, uh, the differences and similarities between different films made by the same person, but assuming that they all have kind of the stamp of the author, the person that made it. Now that you, when you watch a movie being made that closely by that many people, we just talked about all the different people involved and the hierarchical structure. Um, is do you do you still feel that that's a myth? Do you do you feel that like that auteurism is a real thing? You know, uh, given how many people it takes to get to get one movie made. Um, I think it is. I mean, I think, you know, Bonfire of the Vanities, like it or hate it, it still got a lot of characteristics of Brian De Palma. There's a certain kind of shot he likes, a certain like the certain rule, what he calls the rules of film grammar. And you can see them. Are they as pure as they are in some of his other films? Probably not. But definitely. I mean, you know, for uh, 
you know, people always ask me, do I like the movie? And I always say, I can't even think of it that way. But I will say, I watched it again recently. It's interesting to look at. There's, you know, if you look at a Brian De Palma film, even if it's not your favorite Brian De Palma film, there's always something interesting happening. And so that's the auteur theory. Not everybody can set a shot up like that. It's really hard. Yes. And no, that's a great answer. I find, I find that fascinating. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, you said before about, you know, about what we believe and before you mentioned the word mythology. So people, everyone thinks they know how the government works or how this works or how that works, right? That was a great line. So I want to, I want to um, give you a quotation from David Ray, who was the film's editor. And this is, this is something I'd love to get your reaction to. He says, quote, everybody thinks about film. Everybody knows films are made somewhere out there. And it's interesting, but very little is known about what goes on because all of us lie. So I'd love to know like what your reaction is to that quote and what are some of the things you used to believe about film? Even as a film critic, you might've had mythologies that got, that got altered or even shattered as you worked on this. And I wonder, has, has writing this book dispelled any of maybe the romance of film or, for you or changed the way you watch films? Well, that's a multi-part question. So I'll yeah. try to take a piece by piece. <laughs> so one, um, so when I talk about, when he's talking about people lie, I think, you know, it may be the way everybody lies about what their work is. You know, people say, oh, you're a writer. That sounds so exciting. I thought, yeah, sit with me by my desk while I'm throwing things in the garbage can because I hate what I just wrote. And I think with films, though, because they are so complex, I think people believe what they see in a TV show about a film being made. You know, they see the, you know, they'll see the actors getting excited and getting angry and they'll see the glamorous moment or they'll see the really sad moment when the actor is failing and their heyday. You hardly ever see things about the poor guy who has to go looking to find the perfect courtroom uh, because the director wants a particular look or um, the sound effects or just the fact the union rules, you know, all these sort of tedious kind of things you don't hear about. But then on the creative side, you know, a lot of times things that people think were these deeply planned out incredible shots, they're an accident or something went wrong or the best kind of experience is it's an accident that happens on the spur of the moment. Like in Bonfire of the Vanities, again, like it or hate it, the opening shot of that movie is like a five minute uninterrupted steady cam shot that is an absolute technical tour de force. If you make films, you know how hard it is to do that. If you don't, you might not like it, you know, but so I think part of it's a combination of sort of, you know, Hollywood is in the business of manufacturing a lot of myths about how movies are made. And it's not that they're lies exactly, they're just half truths. And so that did it ruin the, it did not ruin the glamour of movie making, because I have to say there were so many times in the course of making this, making movies is very glamorous, even though a lot of it's really tedious and really awful. You know, you walk down Park Avenue in the middle of the night and they're making up rain in the middle of the street and they're planting fake tulips and there's all this hubbub going on and it's ex and everybody's a little, you know, excited because they're trying to get it done. It's it's exciting, you know, just in the same way hospitals are exciting. That's why they're always making TV shows about them. You know, there's a lot of hubbub and it's very, and then there are these moments. I remember once Melanie Griffith standing by her trailer in the middle of the night and she was in costume and 
De Palma had come up to her and, you know, he was talking to her very seriously about something, trying to calm her down. And it was, it was a real movie star moment. Like you're looking at that and thinking, wow, that's, that's pretty incredible. I'm standing here in my schlubby, you know, sweatshirt and blue jeans, but that's cool. So I wouldn't say it dispelled the glamour for me. What it did was it made me, it made it very hard to be a good film critic after that. Because um, I found it much, you know, the truth is people love reading pans of movies. So it's always easy to write a a negative review because it's always easier to see what doesn't work than what works. It's harder to explain what makes a film great because things are kind of seamless. But when something's not working, you can say, you can point out these different elements. But I found it harder and harder to be snarky you know, because no matter what, you know that most people don't set out to make a bad movie. I mean, some movies are crass from the get go. And, you know, you know, they're just there to make money. Those aren't so hard to do it. But a movie that's trying to be good, that has good intention, it it became harder and harder for me to critique it um, in an accurate way, because it made me feel bad because I could think of all those people who poured their hearts and souls into it. Yeah. That's it what ruined I you as a critic. Yeah. hundred percent. Because I will, I will admit here on the show, when I picked it up, I was expecting the, the, the delight of snark. I expected it from the title, from the subtitle. And I thought it was going to be like, oh, here's like, a, here's like, you know, it's going to be like a, a, a documentary, so to speak on paper about Heaven's Gate or, or something like that. And, 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 you know, 50 pages in, I thought that that's not what, that's not what the experience of this book is like at all. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that because it, it wasn't what I intended at all. And, you know, I guess for me also, especially now, so many, having written so many books myself, you know, I know what it's like to go in with, you know, all great intentions. And sometimes you really nail it and people really respond well to it. And sometimes you don't. Um, and, and, it's not that you worked any less hard or you were any, you know, smarter or stupider. It's just for what it, sometimes it all comes together the right way. And sometimes it doesn't, you know, bonfire probably in retrospect was impossible to make as a movie. The book is just too complicated. It, it would probably be a really great, you know, TV series on Netflix or HBO or something. Yeah, I think I speak for a lot of listeners when I say that what you said was a fascinating answer, but it uh, in retrospect it matches perfectly the the tone of the the tone of the book and I think that maybe some some of the panning that you're talking about comes from just giving something short shrift and not thinking about it, but clearly given the process that you went through to write the book, you stayed with it too long uh to just be dismissive and the book is never dismissive. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. I mean, it was never my intention. I have to say when the book uh, came out, you know, my book benefited a lot from the fact that the movie got such, you know, was such a considered such a huge fiasco. And it was, it was really terrible because De Palma really put himself at risk in a lot of ways by letting me be the spy on the set. And, um, you know, I benefited definitely from that. And some of the reviews of my book were much snarkier, adopted a snarkier tone than I did. That's for sure. It's funny how you said things don't always come together because before um, 
when we were waiting to start the interview, Mike and I were just, we were talking about, you know, books we love. And we happened to talk about how um, the Coen Brothers movie of, of the film of True Grit is so much better, we think, than the original with John Wayne. And then, so we said, why do you think that is? And I said, you know, it's funny because, and I'm reading like uh, Patty Chesky's novel of Altered States, which I don't think is a great movie, but the novel is, and it's funny that the movie follows it. And we said, it's funny if you watch the, the 1968 True Grit, you know, Henry Hathaway directed, a, you know, a, a million Westerns. You know, yeah, John Wayne did Robert Duvall. You had Glenn Campbell. It follows the book. It has a lot of the original dialogue from the book, but it just doesn't click. Whereas the Coen Brothers ones, things come together and it clicks. Yeah, no. And some of that is some of its luck, honestly. You know, that's the other thing that I really came to appreciate was the the mysterious thing of casting or, you know, sometimes you cast somebody against type and it becomes like this amazingly incredible thing. And sometimes you cast them against type and it's not good because they're against type. So it is, um, you know, I think the example De Palma always used, you know, the reason he chose Bruce Willis to play the British journalist, which was an interesting choice. Um, but, but he had remembered Lolita, you know, which you know, was a pretty good movie. And James Mason does the voiceover. And because he had a British accent, De Palma had it in his mind that if it was somebody with a British accent, it would be a bomb. You know, that's so, funny. yeah. Yeah. And the casting is so funny because, again, we look back at it and we think, well, Tom Hanks is, is, is you know, the, probably the single most likable, bankable face in Hollywood and you're going to have him become this total SOB, the master of the universe. Who's And and so that's really casting against type. I mean, it was earlier in his career, but still he already established himself as that kind of guy. And you could see sometimes, like you said, these work and sometimes they don't. Well, and the other thing that happened with the film and subsequently is that I think people who never read Tom Wolfe's book, more of those people would like the movie than people who had read Bonfire of the Vanities. If you read Bonfire of the Vanities, you have your own idea in your head of of what the of what the movie's going to look like. People who came in cold were more forgiving. Um, but you know, it was a. It, I, I just reread Bonfire of the Vanities, and interestingly, I think it would be it would be very interesting to see what the reaction to that book would be today. I think that that it would have a hard time um, being as widely acclaimed now as it was there. Not that it's not, I think it's a a really good book, but because I think politically it would have a hard time. Yeah. A hundred percent. I just, I just reread it maybe a couple, a few years ago and I had the same exact reaction because I read it when it first was serialized in Rolling Stone. And then when it came out as a, as a novel and then, and, but now, yes, now it's the, the world is different. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I was on a show with some professor of sociology professor at the University of Pennsylvania, and they were talking about the book Bonfire of the Vanities. And he said he he, he could never teach that in his class because he would be, you know, thrown out of school. <laughs> and I that was upsetting to me because I thought, wow, that's too bad. I mean, it would be great to be able to to use that book as a talking point, what's good, what's bad about it, but we're not at that place right now in public discourse. Well, I think anybody who's who wants to go to film school should certainly read your book. I think people should read The Devil's Candy. It's a brilliant, brilliant book. Mike and I absolutely loved every page of it. We were thrilled to talk to you today. And if you wanted to, do you want to add something about, you mentioned um, earlier that um, um, TCM is going to do oh, the yeah. because of the anniversary. Can you talk about that a bit? 
Yeah, no, this is really exciting. So TCM has a podcast series called The Plot Thickens. So season one was about Peter Bogdanovich, which was, I thought, great. It was great. And I'm mm-hmm. season two, The Devil's Candy, co-hosted by me and Ben Mankiewicz. <laughs> so that's really been fun. And it's also been absolutely riveting to me to have to take this very, I mean, I'm appreciating some of the <laughs> difficulties that the, the film people had adapting Bonfire of the Vanities because I have to take this 400 page book I wrote and figure out how to adapt it to a seven part podcast. The great thing I have is I have a lot of my original tapes. So we have, and most of them are in pretty good shape still. And the TCM has all these. So when, um, I I think the podcast is going to be a lot of fun just because you'll hear these people and including Tom Wolf and Brian De Palma and Tom Hanks. It's very cool. Wow. We we look forward to that. um, I think the first episode is airing on June 29th. Excellent. We will will definitely tune in. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners uh, would like to tune in as well. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for talking to us, Julie. We really enjoyed this. And again, if you have not read The Devil's Candy out there, you have to have to. It's one of the all-time great film books. Thank you, guys. And I I look forward to listening to more of your shows. It sounds like a lot of fun. (laughs) Thanks for talking with us. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thank you.